Apologies. Oh my gosh. You're listening to Aw Geez, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio. We are here to provide an authentic Minnesota take on a show named after a city in North Dakota. Every week we go over what happened and who's dead now. We ask experts to weigh in on the show and talk about the murders, the mob, the music, and more. I'm Tracy Mumford. I write about books for NPR, and I love cable TV. I'm Jay Gabler. I write about music for The Current and Your Classical, and I'm an editor at a blog called The Tangential. This week, we talked to Maggie Phillips, the woman responsible for the show's amazing soundtrack, about the 70s, character anthems, and what went into shaping the music of Fargo. But first, we need to talk about all the action that happened last night, and there was a lot of it. It is war. Oh my god, I was like, how many people are going to die before the first commercial break, even? Plenty. Right? So we start with... Reagan, he's finally here. We've had hints of him coming. We've seen these campaign posters, but his bus has arrived in Luverne, Minnesota. And we hear Reagan throughout the episode delivering what's portrayed as a stump speech and is adapted from a speech that he actually gave in November of 1979, sort of announcing his candidacy for the presidency. We who are privileged to be Americans have had a rendezvous with destiny since the moment in 1630 when John Winthrop, standing on the deck of the tiny Arbella off the coast of Massachusetts, told that little band of pilgrims, we shall be as a city upon a hill. Yeah, it's amazing how when you hear Reagan's speech in this context, it's both optimistic and ominous all at once. And he has all of Laverne in tears listening to it. Yes, especially Carl Weathers. But back in the woods, Joe Bulo is, I think trying to endear himself to the local government in North Dakota because he wants to plan his takeover. He's ready. He's trying to make some new friends. They're all out there in the woods. Uh, They've got their guns. They also have a longbow. Longbow is an art. Yes. That's what we hear from the Fargo zoning commissioner who is out in the woods with the Kansas City mob for what at first looks very mysterious. What are they all arming up for? And it turns out they're going deer hunting. But it turns out that the Gerhards have gone Kansas City hunting because before Mr. Longbow can even get a shot off at the deer in the distance, we watch his head explode right on screen. Yeah. And why have the Gerhards decided to so suddenly move on Kansas City? That takes a little development that we get in a scene in the Gerhardt kitchen where we see Dent delivering Rye's belt buckle to Floyd. So Floyd is heartbroken finding out that her youngest son is in fact dead. Of course, we've known that all along since Peggy nailed him with her car and Ed took him out with that garden trowel. But she can't seem to wrap her head around the idea that this butcher in Luverne killed her son. Luckily, Dodd steps in and spins it. Dodd and Dent tell a version of the story that's true insofar as they explain that Rye went hunting for the judge and got hunted himself and ended up getting killed by this butcher in Laverne. But the way they tell the story to Floyd and Bear departs from the truth insofar as they say that this butcher of Laverne, that's almost like a code name, they call him the Butcher of Laverne, and they say that he's a hired hitman for Kansas City and that he was specifically targeting Rye rather than the death being essentially accidental, which was the reality. So this sets the Gerhards, led by Floyd, up to move aggressively on Kansas City, who they now believe, thanks to Dodd's deception, has fired the first shot in the war. But of course, we know that bumbling Ed Blumquist has nothing to do with Kansas City. That doesn't matter at this point. 
the Gerhards take out Joe Bulo and his deer hunting crew in a really violent, blood-splattered snow, of course, seen in the woods. We believe that we see all of Kansas City die, basically, including both Kitchen brothers with Dent just, like, slashing left and right. And this scene ends with a really quiet confrontation between Joe Bulo and Dent. What's going to happen? We find out a little bit later in the episode. The only member we don't see in this Kansas City Gerhardt shootout in the snow is Mike Milligan. But back to the Blumquists. What is up with them? Well, they're hanging out in their basement having kind of a family meeting. And this is really a remarkable basement. It must be the biggest, like, small home basement in all of Minnesota because it seems to be two stories high stacked with magazines that have been hoarded by Peggy. And we really get our first glimpse of Peggy's mental illness in this basement, which is something Kirsten Dunst has given interviews about, which I didn't really see that way. I thought, okay, she's kind of a klepto. She's clearly got her own motives. But when we see her hoarding on display and how disoriented she is in the middle of these magazines trying to decide what to pack when they flee, we really do get a a greater image of her mental illness. I would take the complete National Geographic from 1975 if it was me. But, you know, I'm not Peggy. It's up to her to decide. I don't know if that's going to fit in her two suitcases. But either way, Peggy wants to flee to California. Ed is heart set on buying this butcher shop and having some babies and staying in town. Yeah. And Peggy points out in this conversation, she reveals to Ed, who didn't previously know, that Constance, this is her hairdresser friend, saw the car after it hit rye and before it hit the tree. So Constance is going to be a complication if they want to make their home happily in Laverne forevermore. Constance might have a target on her back at this point. Back to the Gerhardt compound, where now Floyd is ready to have the butcher taken out. She's bereft. She is she has ordered this attack, presumably on Kansas City, which has gone really well. And now she's ready to have this butcher of Laverne taken out. So she tells Dodge to take care of it. And Dodd is going to send his man Virgil. But Charlie, plucky, gung-ho Charlie, wants to be involved. He said, you know, this was, they killed a Gerhardt. A Gerhardt should kill him. And convinces Dodd to let him go along, even though we know that his dad, Bear, wants him to have nothing to do with the family business. Charlie isn't the only Gerhardt kiddo hitting the road here. We see Simone storm out of the Gerhardt compound and smoke a little joint in her car on the way to the Pearl Hotel to see Mike Milligan. And it turns out that Simone is seemingly developing real feelings for Mike Milligan. She seems like genuinely sweet on him and excited to have this rendezvous. And Mike Milligan, once they do meet, says, you know, how do you see us? Do you think we're Romeo and Juliet? But hold up, hold up, because once she gets to the hotel, she knocks on the door, a kitchen brother answers, which I was dead sure, literally, that both the twins were dead in the snow. Yeah. And we so we went back and rewatched the episode and you do see the second kitchen brother get knocked out by Dent, but you don't get the confirmed kill. So presumably the second kitchen brother got up out of the snow, found his dead brother, and now he's really mad at all the Gerhards, Simone included. So it's a tense moment for Simone. Which is odd, though, because Dent doesn't really seem like the kind to leave loose ends. Right. So why leave one kitchen brother alive? I don't know. My theory is that he knew he had to go for Bulo. That was the big prize. So rather than confirm every single fatality, he chased down Bulo. Speaking of Bulo, he is also present at the hotel, but not in his usual form. 
Although his hair is still looking fantastic, and it's all we see of him, thank goodness, in his current state, which yeah. is dead. They told they pull a total scene out of the movie Seven. There's a box sitting on the table. Simone's kind of casually draping her hand over it before we really know what's in there, and it's Joe Bulo's head. Sorry, Joe. We heard from a lot of our fans on Twitter that they're fans of uh, Joe Bulo and his character, and sadly, that that will be the last we will see of Mr. Bulo. A mustache gets you killed in Fargo. Rye had that nasty mustache. Joe Bulo's got that thick walrus thing going on. Good observation. Glad I'm clean shaven. They are dead. So Trooper Lou, on the road, he has been assigned, despite the carnage happening under his jurisdiction, he has been assigned to the high priority of essentially babysitting the Reagan bus. And while the Reagan bus is pulled over for what we presume is a P-stop for the Gipper, Lou uh, touches base with his friend Ben Schmidt up in Fargo, and they trade some information. Ben tells Lou about the shootout in the woods. Lou tells Ben what he's figured out about Ed's role in the killing of Rye. And so Lou agrees to finish up his Reagan babysitting duties and then head up to North Dakota the next day. If we survive the night, he says. Again, ominously. And then we're at the butcher shop where Noreen, maybe my favorite character of the season, not going to lie, finally says more than, okay, then, which is all we've heard her say so far. Yeah, this is a huge episode for Noreen. She really uh, has a lot to say this episode. And the first thing that she is talking about is, of course, existentialism. We've been seeing her read that Camus book all season long. And now she starts talking to Ed and explaining her theory that life is meaningless because we're all going to die. And once we know that we're all going to die, life's just a big joke. Poor Ed. I mean, he still wants that dream. He wants that 1950s home. His grandpa lived to age 96. And Noreen's just like, "Mm, nope, you're going to die. Meanwhile, Ed just wants to get back to work. He's on the phone trying to scare up some cash to buy the butcher shop. He goes to work. Little do they know, of course, that what may be their destiny is rolling in from Fargo shortly. But meanwhile, Peggy has gone to pick up her car at the service station. And she's gone there with two full suitcases that she packed. And you think about how hard it must be to pack just two suitcases when you're a hoarder. And then you think about how nifty it is to be able to lift the hood of your car and put those suitcases in there like she does. That was a sweet 70s vehicle. But she's going to hit the road. She's packed. She's gone. You know, she's got Ed in her rearview mirror. And she starts to pull away from the auto body shop. And she actually has a change of heart. She decides she is going to sell the car. Now, we don't know immediately what she's going to do with the cash, but she does agree to sell the car, actually kind of forces the car on the service station owner for less than its market value. But she says seven today is better than 14 tomorrow, referring to hundreds of dollars, takes the check, gets on a bus. Well, she says that she needs to sell the car to help Ed buy the shop. And I was all in on Peggy at this point. I was like, Peggy's doing a good thing. And you... You didn't think so. I had no faith in Peggy. I thought she was going to totally take the money and run. I thought this is her liberation moment. She's going to leave Ed behind. Peggy would never flee on the bus, though. She's much more high class than that. Anyway, back to the Gerhards, where uh, Bear and Dent are having a little moment. And Bear sort of has some warm words, such as they, the Gerhards are capable of warm words. However, Bear does suspect, correctly as we know, that... Dodd and Dent are not being completely forthcoming about what happened to Rye. But before Bear can win Hansi over, Dodd comes out and says, like, oh, that's my man. If you want to talk to my man, you got to talk to me. Says some really unnecessary words about who we presume is Bear's dead wife. It's not a good brotherly moment. No. And 
Bear just responds with this very biblical talk of retribution and judgment day. Again, ominous. So many ominous moments. But we're only in episode five, so there's a lot more to be for. Well, right, to be, talking, <laughs> to be talking about judgment day in episode five, I was like, oh, how are we going to do with the other half of the season? Well, we're going to have bodies stacked to the second floor. We know that. And is it going to happen in the butcher shop? Well, it seems like it's about to because Charlie, packing heat, gets a, gets some basic tips from the uh, Gerhardt family hitman. Just shoot once, and if he keeps moving, shoot twice. Super simple. Super simple. So Charlie goes in, and immediately we see there's going to be a little flirtation here between Charlie and Noreen. He and Noreen are just this morose, adorkable couple made to be together. They've both read The Myth of Sisyphus. Aww. It's... Pretty depressing. Really? See, I think it's beautiful. But then everyone always says, Noreen, you're morose. Halloween is my favorite holiday. So Charlie and Noreen are kind of bonding, but, you know, Charlie is shaking because he knows that he needs to take out Ed when Ed comes out of the back room. Ed comes out of the back room and... He can't do it. Nope. Charlie just buys some meat, goes back to the car. The hitman is just like, oh... Come on. So take two. Charlie, after placing a quick call to his dad saying, you know, actually, I'm ready to go back to school now. Anytime yep. you want. I re- rethought that whole opposition. Let's let's go back to school. But they're still in Laverne. He still needs to get the job done. So back in the butcher shop, he goes, locks the door, puts the clothes sign out, goes into the back room where he finds both Ed and Noreen. That's right. He pulls out his gun. And right as Noreen comes out of the bathroom, she screams, Ed! Fires a gun, starts a giant conflagration. Like, the flames spread in the back of this butcher room so fast. Ed is hiding under the table. There's a shootout. Virgil, the Gerhardt hitman, kicks in the back door. Now he's shooting. Virgil having correctly guessed that Charlie, once again, was not going to quite pull this off. Well, and Virgil's bullet then ricochets and hits Charlie. So Charlie's down. Noreen tries to attack the hitman. She's down. Now Virgil is choking Ed to death on the carcass of a dead pig as these flames are shooting up all around them. And for me, I got to think for just kind of this simple religious guy like Ed, this has to be hell in his mind. Yeah, he's got to be seeing those flames on the stovetop and thinking, all right, this is it. I'm looking into, yeah, I'm looking into the inferno. But fortunately, he remembers his handy meat tenderizer, which he uses to tenderize Virgil's head, which gets even more tender once Ed finishes the job with a cleaver. (laughs) And as he tells Peggy later, I think I killed another fella. Yeah, I killed another fella at at maybe two. (laughs) Maybe two. So now the flames are everywhere. The store is going up in smoke. Noreen and Ed pull a still alive Charlie. He's just been wounded. He's not dead. Out of the flames. They're out on Main Street. A crowd is gathering. And Ed says to Noreen, you know, you saw what happened. He shot first. I didn't do it. You know, trying to get their story straight and then takes off for his truck. And now we get a time lapse, presumably not alien induced. But by the time we come back to the scene at the butcher shop after catching up with Betsy, who's taking her pills and having a tender moment with her dad, by the time we get back to the butcher shop, night has fallen. Which is really peculiar because they're just loading Charlie into the ambulance and it is dark. Yeah, so poor Charlie has presumably been laying out in the street in the freezing cold for a couple of hours. But wait, I mean, let's admit that up in these northern parts during the winter, dusk can fall rather quickly. Yes, that, that, that could be the case. But it was a little odd. Anyway, so 
Charlie's getting loaded into the ambulance, seemingly not dead. At least the blanket's not up over his face. And Ed is back at La Casa Blomquist. Here is where the title of the episode becomes totally critical. This episode is called The Gift of the Magi. Which, uh, in case you're not up on your O. Henry stories from the early 1900s. Or your Sesame Street Christmas specials. (laughs) Is a story about a couple who they each want to get each other a present. And so they scrimp and they save. But in the end, their saving and their sacrifices has made their presence for each other irrelevant. Because the husband got a hair clip, but the wife cut off all of her hair to buy him a watch. But he sold the chain that the watch would go on. So the way that plays out in this episode is that Ed has taken the actions, kind of perforce, but nonetheless has taken the actions that will be forcing the couple now to flee. To California, which is what Peggy wanted at the beginning of the episode. But they can't flee because they don't have a car because... Well, but Peggy sold the car to buy the butcher shop, which is now burned down. Oh, man. So essentially... (laughs) Oh, geez. Peggy got Ed the butcher shop. And Ed got Peggy the chance to flee to California, but that's not what either of them want anymore. And the episode leaves with the two of them with their $700 and no car watching the police sirens and the lights flash outside their door. That's great. You know, thank you. But we got to go. You need to pack. Okay. 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 Okay, so let's talk about some of the themes that emerged this episode. Uh, First of all, Ronald Reagan. We've been hearing Noah Hawley talk about how Reagan is actually an important figure and not just a sort of piece of period decor, if you will, in this season. That's right. He said that Reagan is pivotal to the show, not because he's going to play a role in all of this murder plot or anything like that, but just that he said, like, this Beckett waiting for Godot, waiting for Reagan idea kind of hangs over the whole season. And this is where it really becomes interesting that this show is set in the late 70s, at the dawn of the 80s. I feel like most period pieces, they'll sort of choose a decade. And they'll be like, all right, this is a 70s show, or this is an 80s show, or this is a 60s show. But this intersection sort of between the 70s and the 80s really captures this moment where the country is depressed, looking for a savior, looking for someone to cheer them up and offer a new hope. And this is Reagan, but clearly, as we're seeing in this season of Fargo, Reagan is not, is is kind of, a, he's being portrayed as a false prophet, I would say. Lou has that really depressing moment with Reagan in the bathroom, uh, bonding by the urinals, and Lou wants to be comforted. He's saying he feels like the evil of the world has come home with him, that it's living in his wife in the form of cancer. You know, are we really going to pull through this moment, like Reagan keeps saying in the speech that we hear him repeat twice in the episode? Do you really think we'll get out of this mess we're in? Son, there's not a challenge on God's earth that can't be overcome by an American. And I truly believe that. Yeah. But how? Sounds like we'll be seeing more of uh, Ronald Reagan as brilliantly played by the legendary Bruce Campbell. Great to see Bruce Campbell on screen in any capacity. And Bruce Campbell is live tweeting the episodes that he's in. So you should check him out on Twitter if you want to get the inside scoop. What's his Twitter handle? Groovy Bruce. Awesome. We've got to talk about Peggy. So prior to this episode, I was just thinking she has this nasty streak. She's kind of a bad person. But we get a lot more insight into kind of the instability. The vulnerability. 
And what's really interesting is Kirsten Dunst gave this interview to The Hollywood Reporter saying that there was an unfilmed scene in the original script that showed her talking to her fiancé at the butcher shop before he left for Vietnam. And the fiancé is friends with Ed and says, you know, Ed, if anything happens to me, I want you to take care of her. Which goes a long way towards explaining the marked lack of sexual heat between Peggy and Ed. I mean, this explains we even got that brief glimpse of their wedding photo when Peggy was packing and they are like barely touching. It's like the most prom like hold hands from two feet away wedding picture. Yeah. But we, we are certainly seeing uh, some of Peggy's vulnerabilities and seeing that the relationship may not be as one-sided as it initially seemed, that Peggy does, in fact, need Ed. Yeah, things really shifted for me here. Before, I thought, you know, Peggy's really putting up with this dopey Ed guy who is just so simple and wants these really basic domestic things. But in this episode, I think we clearly see that Ed has actually been putting up with Peggy and all of her neuroses and issues. So what's going on with Dent? We get some more insight into Hansi Dent in this episode. He was adopted by the Gerhards at age eight or nine, which in these mob style stories, that only ever happens when the person who adopts you also killed your whole family, right? <laughs> like, and then they adopt you and make you their own. I feel like there's some nasty backstory that we may not get any more of. But what's interesting to me is Hansi is the only Native American character that we see in the show. In fact, the only other representation we have of a Native American is the tobacco statue in the butcher shop. To me, that just underlines how alone Hansi is in this universe. And we're really not learning much about what's going on inside his head. We got that little flashback to his childhood, but we're really left wondering where his allegiances lie and what his ultimate goals in life are. I mean, he's at least in the moment being loyal to Dodd and helping Dodd pull the wool over the rest of the Gerhardt's eyes. But will that last? And there's that weird moment in this episode when he comes up to the Gerhardt compound and he drinks water out of the hose. Which you pointed out, first of all, would that actually be happening in the winter? You wouldn't have the outdoor <laughs> hose on when you're in a situation with snow on the ground. North Dakota details. But also, it's kind of speaking to the fact that he doesn't go into the house. He doesn't belong to the house. And then, so then you have Bear coming up and extending a hand to Dent and saying, listen, I, you've been dealt a crappy lot in life and you've really, you're part of our family, he says explicitly. However, you're going to need to shoot straight with us when it comes to this, quote unquote, butcher of Laverne. Yeah. And Bear says, you're part of our family versus when Dodd comes out, he says, that's my man. There's an ownership that he takes over Dent. And I think that's not going to play out nicely for Dodd. I feel like Dent may have a change of heart somewhere along in the next five episodes, but we'll have to see. Yeah, Dodd is clearly the the villain of this season and so much more interesting villain than Billy Bob Thornton. I know I've talked about that before, but... Ooh, I think some of our listeners would disagree with you. you really? Tell us what you think on Twitter. Some people really love Billy Bob. I mean, I, Billy Bob as an actor is great, but his character was just very one-dimensional. Whereas in you know, Dodd, you see, you know, that he has that tender moment with his mom. You see where he's sort of come from this really kind of injured place and is compensating for it by trying to be this tough guy and has these delusions of grandeur, but he's really helping to sink the family's ship. Yeah, his swagger is going to take them all down, but we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. 
So let's talk about love. We learned a lot about the characters' relationships in this episode. We obviously we talked about Peggy and Ed and what we've learned about their relationship. We also learn about Simone and Milligan's relationship, which turns out to be a little bit less, um, oh, purely pragmatic than it may have initially seemed. Yeah, that's a weird and twisted situation happening there because we see he lets Simone go. Milligan lets Simone go, but tells her, I want to know everything before it happens every time or else I'll kill you like the rest of them. She's now at the mercy of both Milligan and her father. They do have this conversation as part of that scene where Milligan is talking about his mother and how his mother was always so pessimistic. She could find a cloud in every silver lining, but he's optimistic. He wants to, you know, see, think positively of the future. And you could see, you can see Simone sort of reading that as maybe optimism about their relationship. She really seemed 19 to me in this episode. You get this glimpse of her as a kid that's really in over her head, tried to run her own game, and it's just not going to work out. And later, when she goes back home, it looks like she's going to have another confrontation with Dodd, but Floyd steps in, Grandma saves the day, and interrupts whatever violence was about to happen there. So... She's basically just pinballing between these two really violent men in her life right now. And you wonder if Floyd is going to be Simone's savior in a way, that if if Floyd comes out of this all right, she may be able to bring Simone with her. But then counterposed to all of this, we see this have this really sweet moment between Noreen and Charlie. It's really a scene that's let linger in this episode, and in part because you know, the producers understand that this is a very tense moment, that you've got Charlie come in, has coming in and plans to shoot and kill Ed and has been explicitly instructed not to leave any survivors. So, you know, he's weighing whether or not to just shoot Noreen on the spot, but then they're having this sort of, this nice little moment, this little conversation about literature and Noreen is giving these shy little smiles and it's this like nice little oasis of innocence in this morass of vice. But I couldn't help but look at Noreen, and she's dressed in this pink sweater. She's got these little pigtails hanging down. She looks exactly like one of the dead chickens hanging in the window behind her. I just couldn't get over that. So Noreen also gives us the existentialist thesis this episode. And we've talked previously about how existentialism is clearly a theme in this season. The episode titles are pointing towards that. You have Noreen saying... Well, life has no meaning, according to Camus, because we're all going to die. But then very shortly thereafter, you see Charlie come in and is seemingly preparing to shoot Noreen. And you sort of wonder if Noreen really believes that her life has that little meaning. Well, and in that moment, they don't all die. Not even Charlie dies. Like, is this a counterpoint to Camus? Right. So she seems very, like, you know, very, very bleak and convinced by this existentialist literature she's been reading but maybe there's a there's sort of a spark of 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 humanity and and life in her that that won't be extinguished and that may be true of other characters in this season as well. Charlie could convince her that there's something to live for. In the heat of the moment, literally the heat of the moment as the flames are coming up and Charlie's laying on the floor bleeding, she convinces Ed that they have to drag him out to safety. Okay, we have to talk about the aliens because I always have to talk about the aliens. We got a brief moment of them when Betsy Salverson is at the table. She's kind of stewing over her sugar pill and contemplating her illness. She lifts up her mug and reveals Molly's drawing. It's this adorable little drawing. Of their family. Molly, Betsy, Lou, the house, and... The visitors from Mars. Right? There's this like cartoon UFO dangling over the family. I mean, I guess it could just show that Molly's 
particularly bad at drawing a sun. But no, I think it's aliens. Which means, like, did she see that out of her bedroom window? Or, I mean, any little girl in 1979 could have been drawing UFOs. As we've discussed, they were very big in pop culture at the time. But is there something more? I don't know. And our closing title music was Children of the Sun. Another alien nod. They are out there in the characters' minds, if not in reality. Well, and if you think about it, aliens are what started this whole awful chain of events. The people in the Waffle Hut would have died anyway. But aliens are the reason that Rai got hit by the car, which dragged in the Gerhards, which has created this whole situation. So, aliens are a pivotal plot point. One of the highlights of the season of Fargo has been the music, for sure. It's this great mix of 70s tunes, both classic and obscure. And Marguerite Phillips is the music supervisor this season. We've got her here to talk about the soundtrack she's helped create. Marguerite, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. My name's Maggie. I just use Marguerite. That's my real name, my grandmother's name. Oh, but good to know. But you can call me Maggie. Given the mix of the music in this season... How do you decide what fits, whether it's a percussion instrumental, pop music? How do you know just what that right music is for any given scene? You know, I tell people it's always just sort of a gut reaction. I just feel if something works. But with Noah, it took me a little while to get inside his head. And, and you know, I do with every project, I, I'm working with a new person who has new taste, and they're, they're creating an entirely different world for each project. So it takes me a little bit of time to get into their head and and feel what they're thinking. No, it was almost impossible because I never knew what he was thinking. Like, I tried to find stuff that I thought he would like, but he just had some crazy, crazy ideas, fantastic ideas. It's far to, by far, was the most challenging project I've ever worked on. You know, he, we'll talk it out in the spotting session, and I'll have a direction to go in. And then as far as knowing if it's right, it's if I feel if it's right or not, and then send over Noah, I'll send him a few choices and he'll watch them and pick the one he wants. How many choices would you give him for a given scene? How many options? As far as stuff I send, I mean, I think I would send him like three or four selections, but he also had some that were very, like some of those songs he just knew from the outset what he wanted. So, you know, like the eve of the war, Jeff Wayne, that was a Noah pick. And yet, across the gulf of space, minds immeasurably superior to ours regarded this earth with envious eyes. And slowly and surely, they drew their plans against us. The... Children of the Sun by Billy Thorpe. Those were the first two songs that Noah played for me when I met him for the first time. And you know, actually for this project, this is a year ago now, um, when I first met with Noah and I'd read the first few scripts, we sat down for a while and just talked about, he gave me like eight, directions to uh, go in, you know, as far as the, for the entire season, um, different themes that he wanted musically. And so I went home and I think I spent almost like a month, like really diving in to those eight directions. And then I sent him over a huge, 
maybe an overwhelmingly large uh, load of music for him to listen to and pick from for the season. Do you have a favorite song that didn't make the cut? Yeah, I do. It's Gun by John Cale. play that uh in episode nine all right well we'll have to look out for that one try to figure out where that would have gone no one wanted it to let's just say we had some budget issues understood well we (laughs) wanted to be sure to ask about a song that comes at the end of the very first episode the song go to sleep you little baby and we understand that is noah himself singing yeah that is noah and he's seen and uh, with our composer, our fantastic composer, Jeff Russo. You're a sweet little baby. 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 Honey and the rock and the sugar don't stop. Gonna bring a bottle to the bay. Don't you eat pretty baby. Don't you eat pretty baby. There's a few covers, well, there's, I think, seven or eight covers throughout the season of different um, songs from various Coen Brothers movies, Um, and that's the first of them. We were in the discussions of who could cover that song, and unknown to me, Noah calls up Jeff and is like, hey, can I get into your studio? All of a sudden, I just get this MP3 from Jeff. He's like, this is what Noah and I did last night in the studio. I had no idea that Noah could sing. I mean, I was like, you know, just like totally blown away by it. It's beautiful. That's interesting. I'm wondering about, obviously, a lot of the music this season has been from the 70s, but you've also mixed in more modern music. How did you bounce that? Did you have kind of a guiding principle? It is all before 1979, the music we have in there. The only stuff that we have in is by current artists are songs from Coen Brothers movies. So you've been talking about working with Noah in this season in particular, but I think a lot of the viewers are thinking about the Coen Brothers universe generally. Clearly you are as well, and the Coens are clearly known for their classic soundtracks. Your Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack is a cultural phenomenon. Do you think there's a, a, a Coen Brothers sound, or did you think about the Coen Brothers aesthetic when you were choosing the music for this season? No, not at all, actually. Noah is creating his own thing, and the covers were just... A, a kind of nod to such tremendous, uh, such a tremendous body of work. How did you prepare for this job? Did you just sit down and just immerse yourself in the 70s? Or how do you even start to take on a project like this? Yeah, well, it happened to be one of my favorite periods of music of all time. I was already a little schooled in it. I was born in 75. It's not really music I grew up with, but it just happened to be my favorite. I did a lot of research, honestly. Like um, like I said in the beginning, when Noah gave me eight directions, like one was he wanted me to listen to a lot of Jethro Toll, which um, for me is like a dream project because I'm a huge fan. Um, he wanted me to listen to a lot of uh, music that came out of Kansas City before 1979 because we have the Kansas City contingency. And so I did a lot of research into Kansas City music. We also wanted to listen to music for Simone's character. So I listened to a lot of 70s music, kind of like girl punk. The Runaways was the first band we started listening to. Noah wanted me to go out and sort of listen to international music from that time period. 
and um, prog rock. That was the biggest sort of genre that he wanted me to explore. Before they'd even started shooting, Noah kind of knew what he wanted. And so to prepare for a job like this, it took me about a month of research of like really digging in. Another Oh, another thing was uh, the character of Constance, who is an out lesbian in 79, which is, you know, not a lot of women were out at that time. He wanted to uh, explore what kind of music she would listen to. It's just kind of going into different worlds of music and listening a whole bunch and learning a whole bunch and picking out your favorite from that from that world. I was really interested in all of the operatic music that we just heard in episode four. Can you walk me through how that happened? Well, I wasn't on season one, but I do understand that episode four ended with a requiem, but I don't know which one. Noah wanted to end in a similar way this episode, you know, as a nod to the first season. We also had been listening to German. I think this, we have a Mahler piece in there. I think it's twice. But we'd been listening to German classical music, and it had been inspiring Jefferson's score throughout the season. And I mean, I think it was just I don't. That episode for me, that was the episode that left me sort of shell shocked. I watching it the first time in the any room we were spotting. It was like for me the first time that I was like, this is going to be something that's really going to blow people away. You'd have to ask Noah, but I would say Noah's choice to use that really dramatic music is just to reinforce it. Like, hey, this is a crazy story that we're getting into. In your mind, do you have specific songs that speak to characters, kind of like character anthems? Ed. I would say that song, One Hour Ahead of the Posse by Burl Ives. The sheriff has sworn he will get me. He's riding with 20 and 5. It's from the 50s. He wants to live in the world he grew up in. In the 50s, he wants to have a house and a wife and a family like his father did. You know, he's obviously in over his head. We must win the race to the river. Or they'll be a hanging tonight. We're gonna hang him tonight. Starts off just kind of jolly crazy song, but it gets pretty dark. Just like, you know, I would say Ed's uh, story in this season does. Constance's character, she's one of my favorite characters. Her song that plays in her car, it's the background song. But it's a song by an artist called Chris Williamson. The song is Song for the Soul. That song was kind of, so I've been told, a calling card for lesbians in the 70s. Like, if you had that album at your house, it was a way of saying that you were a lesbian without having to say it, because that was still the world they lived in. Do you have a song for Peggy? For me, she's so difficult to figure out so far. She's what she is, right? And her song is going to be coming in episode 10, so I can't talk about it. But yeah, there's a song that's specific to her and, and sums up her, her whole, I'll say, her dreaming. A lot of the big song moments, I would say, happen towards the end. Well, we won't have you give anything away, but we will definitely be listening for it. And then a lot of, uh, I can say that episode seven, listen for more covers. We have one from Fargo. We have a couple from Oh Brother. We have one from Miller's Crossing. Well, you certainly give us a lot to talk about every week. Thanks again, Maggie, for joining us. 
Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye now. Okay, so you are counting the bodies as quickly as you could as they were being taken out during the shootout in the woods. What's your count now, Tracy? I was trying to count, and then I was realized, well, they just shot him in the leg, and then they shot him in the head, and it was like double counting all these bodies. Luckily, Ben Schmidt, the Fargo detective, gives us a clean count of 12 when he's telling Lou what went down. So an even dozen becomes a baker's dozen then in the butcher shop. When they take out Virgil with the cleaver. So 13 down this episode. And of course, you can never get attached to any characters. So right when they made me like Noreen and Charlie a little bit more, I'm also kind of ready for them to bite it. Oh, I don't know. Didn't see that coming. It could happen. All right. Also, based on the scenes we saw from next week, I am particularly worried about Hank Larson, a.k.a. Ted Danson. That's right. We got a little preview of Hank having a tense confrontation with Dodd. And I would certainly like to see Ted survive because he's a great character. And I especially actually enjoyed the little moment that he had with Betsy in last night's episode, where I thought that was really sort of nice depiction of this sort of Minnesota way of showing affection where he can't express his feelings, but he can be there. What I think is interesting is so, okay, Ted Danson is a widower on the show. Yes, that's right. Lou Salverson, we know, will become a widower. And in season one, Molly falls in love with Gus Grimley, a widower. Hmm. Yeah, so many widowers and no widows yet. No, but I don't think that's going to last. Aw Jeez is produced by Tracy Mumford, Jay Gabler, and Molly Bloom. Many thanks to John Gordon and Steve Nelson. We are live tweeting the episodes on Twitter at Aw Jeez Podcast. That's A-W-J-E-E-Z Podcast. Our theme music is by 70s Minnesota rockers, The Valdons, courtesy of Secret Stash Records. Okay, then. Bye now. Bye now.